Radio Land podcast, Phil, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, bullshit. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tom and Lori. Hello, guys. Hello. 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 I think we're talking about morality as well. Tom, would you say it's morality or bullshit? Or is morality I, bullshit? I think that one of the interesting things about today's show is we have no guest. It's the three of us, and we're talking about some people in the news. We're talking about Gay Talese. We're talking about Jared Kushner. And we are talking about... Jonah Lair. Who is an author with a new book out. His book is called A Book About Love. Gay Talese also has a new book out. His book is called The Voyeur's Motel. And Jared Kushner doesn't have a new book out, but I'm guessing he's going to write one after this experience. He's Donald Trump's son-in-law. Lori, do you want to tell us what you think about Jared Kushner, or should we wait? Let's wait. Join us, won't you, for this week's episode of the LARB Radio Hour. There are a lot of things that happened in the news in the last week that I've wanted to talk to you about, Tom and Lori. Many, many stories that on first blush didn't necessarily seem entirely related, but the more I thought about them, the more I saw there was an overarching theme. And what I'm talking about is the author Jonah Lehrer, who has a new book out, and uh, he was a controversial person because he was knocked off his perch for plagiarism for recycling material mm. for various publishing no-nos. So put a pin in Jonah Lehrer while I move on to Gay Talese, the famous new journalism author. Okay. Who, yeah. I think the New York Times already put a pin in uh, <laughs> and, Jonah Lehrer. And they certainly did. Jennifer <laughs> Sr.'s review, we can we can talk about when we, we circle back to him. Gay Talese has a new book. Gay Talese is a very famous new journalism author who wrote such books as Thy Neighbor's Wife, Power and the Glory. Power Did and he the Glory. That? He wrote right. a book about his Italian right. heritage that got a great deal of attention. He's yeah. he's big. He's famous. He's a literary icon. His new book, The Voyeur's Motel, has been controversial for some related reasons to the Jonah Lehrer situation. And then the third individual who I've been thinking about is Jared Kushner, who is Donald Trump's son-in-law who uh, was called upon to defend Trump from charges of anti-Semitism. And when I was thinking about what all these stories had in common, because what, I wanted to... Exactly what I wanted to ask you. <laughs> what, what, I, what do they have in I common? I think I know. Jews. <laughs> what also? They, well, Gay Talese is not Jewish, <laughs> oh, actually. He's Italian. True. What I thought they had in common, what united these three strands in the, the American uh, tapestry this past week, the crazy quilt is bullshit. These are three stories about bullshit. And really. bullshitters. And bullshitters. And I think we are in an era of epic bullshit and epic bullshitters. And I would love for you guys to tell me what you think. Well, the one story, of course, is about a bullshitter bullshitting about a bullshitter, which is nice. Kind of meta, meta bullshit, right? Which is the editor of The Observer talking about his father-in-law. Lori, set the table for Jared Kushner and Trump, for the people who have not followed this particular it, it, tale. It so blows my mind, this whole story. I don't even know where to start. But, okay, I see him as a great character in a morally complex novel. He comes from real estate family. He marries into the Trump family. And when he marries 
Ivanka in 2000, say 2008, he just no idea that his father-in-law is going to become the Republican nominee for president. So he doesn't fully understand the moral bargain he is making when he makes this marriage. I just thought, this is why we become journalists and writers, because we know we're never going to be put in these kinds of situations. Yes, but why did Jared Kushner become a journalist? Well, he didn't become a journalist. He became a publisher. He is definitely not a journalist. He bought the New York Observer in 2006. He's 25 years old. He says, I am not going to mess with the editorial content of this newspaper. If I do that, I will destroy the value of the very thing I bought. Lori, for our listeners who don't know, what was The Observer like editorially prior to the advent of Jared Kushner? Well, it was a very readable, lively, dependable paper that we all liked reading. It was particularly good with media news. The, the editor was Peter Kaplan. He, of course, left when Jared Kushner bought the paper in 2006. It always was a little on the snarky side. A little bit snarky, but fun, you know, like Spy Magazine. I wrote for them in the 80s. I did a 4,000-word profile on Tony Randall. It was a fun place to write. They paid well. That was fun? 4,000 words on Tony Randall? so fun. Oh, my God. And Um, what became of The Observer after Kushner bought it? Well, the first thing he says, he's 25 years old. He buys the paper. He says, I'm not going to fool with the editorial content because that would destroy the value of this paper. Within seven years... He goes through seven editors. No one stays. Finally, he hires this complete hack who's the editor right now. And what does that mean, that seven editors in seven years, that he's just constantly searching for greater, for more excellence? No, he's demanding (laughs) things of, of them that they feel they cannot give, but they sign confidentiality agreements so that they can get money on their departure so nobody really talks about why they leave. Anyway, he finally hires a friend of his named Ken Kirsten, who co-wrote Giuliani's book with him, and and together they destroy the paper. The best thing was they did a takedown of Eric Schneiderman, who is, is the Attorney General of New York. Schneiderman was the person who decided to sue Trump about Trump University. So they decided to do a takedown of him. They can't find a journalist to do it. So Ken Kirsten, literally, he walks into an ice cream shop and he asks the guy who owns the ice cream shop to write the takedown of Eric (laughs) Schneiderman. When they do the takedown, it's got Trump's fingerprints all over it. It's like they call him Crooked Eric and, you know, Vile Eric. But they claim that it has nothing to do with Trump. I mean, it's just all unbelievable. So leaping forward in this story, last week, the controversy with the Jewish star superimposed over the pile of money in an ad attacking Hillary Clinton appears. And a culture writer for The Observer, a woman named Dana Schwartz, writes an open letter in The Observer to Jared Kushner, an Orthodox Jew, saying, Mr. Kushner, all due respect, what do you intend to do about this? And Kushner, Lori, does what? He writes a defense of his father-in-law, Donald Trump, starting with, he says, my ancestors suffered in the Holocaust. I never talk about that, but I'm just going to tell you about it because I know anti-Semitism. I know what real anti-Semitism is. What real anti-Semitism is. And my father-in-law is not anti-Semitic. He doesn't touch the question of, is he anti-Mexican? Is he anti-Muslim? Does he foment violence against people based on race? Or that he's in bed with every white nationalist anti-Semite in America right now. He doesn't touch that. All he does is say that his 
father-in-law cannot be held responsible for what his followers believe. That is his main argument. Mm-hmm. But also, the I mean, the very idea of real anti-Semitism as opposed to, like, unreal anti-Semitism, which apparently in this analysis is everything except the Holocaust. And then what was the reaction to his defense of his father-in-law? To his defense of his throwing his Holocaust relatives under the bus? Uh, some <laughs> of them objected. He, he, a cousin wrote a rebuttal to Jared's rebuttal saying, you know, this is vile. How dare he speak for the family? And he is an Orthodox Jew, so they do consider themselves morally thoughtful, to say the least. So for him to put himself in this position, it's a Faust story. And and you really enjoy it, Lori, don't you? I do. I was reading a piece about Jared Kushner that I forwarded to you guys that appeared in Tablet Magazine, written by a guy called Jamie Kerchick, who described Jared Kushner as a guy whose father-in-law is an asshole and whose father is an asshole. And Charles Kushner, who was Jared's father, went to jail. And a little footnote, who he was sent to jail by Chris Christie, actually, which makes uh, Trump campaign headquarters a little awkward, for doing some remarkably scummy things, actually. He set up what I think was referred to as a, a honey trap for, for his brother-in-law. He lured his brother-in-law into a motel room with a prostitute, taped it, and showed the tape to his sister, attempting to blackmail his sister over some kind of family business thing. And the sister, of course, marched right down to a prosecutor and handed over the tape. And this resulted in Jared Kushner's dad going to federal prison in Alabama. So knowing that as background, psychoanalyze Jared Kushner for me, Lori, please. Well, I think the reason that this story gives me so much pleasure is because People who look like they have everything, like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. We need a harpo horn every time you say Ivanka. (laughs) You know, they get married, they have this fairy book wedding, and Vanity Fair is photographing them. And what is the cost to their souls of attaining this life that looks so perfect? That's what gives me pleasure, because there is a cost. She seems to be allowed to skate, though. She she gets treated with real kid gloves in the press. No one seems to write anything bad about her. It seems like open season on everyone else for journalists in the Trump campaign, but not not Ivanka. Tom, why is that? I don't know, but it's it's interesting because what's the reason she's supposed to be taken seriously is because she's running her father's businesses. And if she's running her father's businesses, does that mean she was running Trump University too? Is she part of that one with scam? She's the only person in the family who carries herself with what appears to be grace and dignity. I mean, look at her two brothers. They're really fiddly-dee and fiddly-dumb. They could not be dumber. And you can't tell them apart. uh, When they try to defend their father, it's just the word mush is... They are a chip off the old block, but she looks great. She's attractive. She has a kind of dignity, and she's the mother of three children. And people and she never don't touch says her. anything. Well, that's brilliant. Is that of the her. dignity? Is that the only evidence we have of her dignity that she doesn't say anything? Well, it's the only evidence we have of why no one has attacked her because she hasn't said anything to be attacked, mm. which her husband did. So, continuing with the theme of bullshit, has Jared Kushner? Has he been bullshitting himself? Well, that's why his essay defending his father-in-law was so interesting because it gave you some insight into what he's been telling himself and how he's been 
bullshitting living himself with mm-hmm. and living with it. And it's so thin, the argument and the veneer is so thin that the dark night of the soul has to be just an inch underneath it. I mean, he has to be laying awake at night. My name is Seth Greenland. I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We are talking about American society and bullshit. I want to hear your uh, segue now into Mr. Jonah Lehrer. Actually, I was going to go to Gay Talese. Okay. Who I wonder at what point did he realize he was dealing with today's theme as well. And Tom, would you give us some background on why Gay Talese is in hot water right now? He wrote a book about one of these, it's a mythos that's always been fascinating in America, the the, the motel owner that has a spy glass into the rooms, right? The book is There's called a, The Voyeur's Motel. Right. And this is a guy who supposedly got up in the ceilings of his room, had a there was the a crawl space with shag carpet, according to the and, New York Times. And watched his tenants having sex. So. Shag carpet is a nice touch. Yeah. And at a certain point, Gay Talese became, he became aware of the fact that the guy who he based the book on, this guy whose name is Gerald Foose, who had voluminous diaries about all the things he had observed through the people, might not have been telling the truth. And we should also say at this point that the book is between 200 and 300 pages long, and a third of it consists of Gerald Foose's diaries. So, <laughs> which which alone is hilarious, I think. And Gay Talese is in hot water because he published the book without acknowledging that he knew at some point that Gerald Foose was bullshitting him. He also published a segment of it in The New Yorker before the book was published. I think his defense, and some other people have come to his defense, is that it's still a good story, even if Foose is a pathological liar. It's still an interesting psychological essay of this particular pathological liar, even if it's very difficult to distinguish what he did and didn't actually do. He did spy on people from the The shag-carpeted. The shag-carpeted attic up there. Yeah. Accompanied by Gay Talese on occasion. Yeah. Yes, at least once. Yeah. But in uh, Talese's defense, he did say in the book that it was that he didn't trust everything that Foose was telling him, that some of the dates that Foose gave him just didn't match up and didn't make sense, and that there were all sorts of reasons not to entirely trust this story. Now, Tom, you were an author of several books of nonfiction. As an author of nonfiction, what, what do you make of what Talese did? And at what point do you pull out of a project, really. he Clearly, he was dealing with someone who was, at least to a certain degree, out of his mind, a bullshitter, if you will, again, yep. tying into today's theme. And what's the responsibility of a nonfiction author faced with that kind of situation? This is the topic du jour has been for a decade now, as a nonfiction, creative nonfiction explosion has happened. And how much are you allowed to make things up, to make the story, the story that you think the real story is that is your represent you know representation is always false is always selective and therefore you're allowed all sorts of uh, leeway in order to make a, a reading experience 
that gets at the truth, whether or not every single sentence, every piece of dialogue that you recount is an actual transcription of what somebody said or not. So, and D.A. Telez, of course, is one of the people who helped found new journalism, and new journalism's mantra was nonfiction that reads like good fiction. That's the whole idea of it. In order to do that, you have to build stories out of experience, and you're building stories on a template that are, doesn't necessarily exist in the story itself. So at what point did he go too far? At this point, he agrees he did, right? He's disavowed it. And, and then he disavowed his disavowal yeah, subsequently. Did. Yeah. Well, he, the book was out. You know, what was he going to do? Lori, uh, if you were his editor, what would you have done when he turned in the manuscript? Well, of course, I would have noticed that it was something was smelling odd and I would have no, I don't know. You know, I may have bought into it. I may have bought into it because my own career was involved in it as well. People fool themselves. But I have to say, thinking about Jonah Lair, which was the third part of this triangle, I think it's it's a much sadder story than these other stories that we're talking about. The Jonah about. Lair yeah, story. Yeah, I think it's, it's someone that you can really feel awful about, which I can't feel for either Gaitlis or Jared Kushner. Although, is there a relationship between the appetite for these three stories? There are three different kinds of writers. One is not really a writer at all. And we are enjoying that story, Jared Kushner's story, because it's schadenfreude, right? Gates Lees is an old pro, and he is writing not entirely at the top of his game, but he's doing the kind of thing that he's always done. And he went a little too far. He got caught. And it's, I think that there's some schadenfreude in, involved in our enjoyment of that story. There's certainly a lot of schadenfreude in our enjoyment of the Jared Kushner story, because that's a story of a guy who's not even a writer, but he's making an, an ass of himself with his bullshit. Now, Laura, you're saying that well, also, he's contributing to injustice in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah. Which Gates Talese is not. And Jonah Lehrer, though, like Talese and like Kushner, was very successful at sure. a very young age. Right. His new book, which is called A Book About Love, which was destroyed by Jennifer Sr. in the New York Times last week, is his fourth book. I should say his second and third book have been withdrawn from publication. They are no longer available because of fabrications, plagiarism, and other publishing no-nos. He's out now with this new book, and there's a debate about whether or not he should be allowed to publish anymore. Lori, where do you stand? Well, I do feel bad for him. What, what I believe Jennifer Sr. said in her New York Times review is that the reason he made stuff up and plagiarized is because he doesn't have an original thought in his head. And this book proves it because it's supposed to be about love and, and the salvation of love and the, the nature um, of love to restore our lives. His life was shattered. And so he should be able to tell this tale, but he doesn't because all he can do is write in cliches. So his life was destroyed. His career was destroyed. Imagine your publisher burning every copy of everything you wrote. It's like you're being erased from this life. And so, of course, you want redemption. But he can't write his way to redemption because he's not a good enough writer. And that's just sad. He writes in a genre that's referred to as popular science, and it sells a remarkable number of copies of books. It's something I seem to be allergic to, and I have no interest in it. I see people reading those kind of books on planes. What do you guys make of that area of publishing? 
Well, I think that's why he was so successful so early on, because journalists, A, they need people writing that stuff, because most people who are good at science are not great writers, so to find somebody who has one foot in both worlds is very valuable. That's why he got hired at the New Yorker at such a young age. He may understand science, but he cannot write, and he doesn't understand the rules of journalism. I agree with that completely. We have real trouble finding good writers on science. I think we do it really well when we do it, but there are few and far between. I do think that accounts for his early success to a certain extent. And also, of course, nobody that is in the kind of normal round of copy editing and uh, editorial work has any scientific background either, so they didn't notice that's that some right. of it wasn't adding up. Either. So, so why did the story interest you, the John Allaire story? I was interested in it because it speaks to a larger issue that we're facing as a society. We had Harry Frankfurt in here last year, the Princeton professor emeritus who wrote that great book on bullshit. And I just feel like as a society, we've been just completely contaminated by this tincture of bullshit that seems to affect everything. And I thought these three stories all had more than a little bit of it. And to speak to the the Jonah Lehrer angle, the idea that somebody could have a career as an author of nonfiction who is a serial plagiarizer and a serial fabricator and someone who again and again has contravened the conventions of this form is just remarkable to me. And he's out here with this new book, which is being treated in some quarters respectfully. And what I now mentioning Jennifer senior and who New York times review for the third time. But what I loved about it was the subtext of her review was, are you kidding? And I thought that was fantastic because two rarely are people willing to call bullshit in a really public way. And I just think it needs to happen. We're moving away from a, being a fact-based society that has very serious ramifications for America, I think. And these three guys we're talking about, and I, I don't mean to targate at least too strongly with this brush, more Jared Kushner and Jonah Lehrer. Well, Jared Kushner, I think, can be rightfully tarred with this brush. Oh, absolutely. Because he is affecting something outside of himself. No, exactly right. And also to defend Gay Talese a little bit, he's writing about such a tiny little quirky corner of society in that book. I can't frankly get too worked up about it. But the Jonah Lehrer thing, who presents himself as a social scientist and who clearly is a very ambitious, Sammy Glick kind of figure, who reminded me to a certain degree of a guy called Stephen Glass, who published a series of articles in the New Republic in the 90s and again was exposed as being a serial fabricator, had his career destroyed went to law school, has claimed to have cleaned up his act and cannot be admitted to the bar, mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating. So the question is, how long does someone have to suffer? And to me, not that I'm judge and jury, but I see that Jared Kushner's Jonah Lehrer situation occurred just a few years ago. And I'm a little uncomfortable putting myself on, I'm not King Solomon, but somebody like Jonah Lehrer makes me very uncomfortable because it means what his being out there tells me is the truth doesn't matter. And that's something that I find that I'm affected by very deeply. How about you, Lori? Well, I think that the Jonah Lehrer story doesn't affect too many people other than Jonah Lehrer. It reminds me of, the, of remember the fabricator at the New York Times who was fired, the African-American man. Yeah. And he, he wrote a book. He made things up in his reporting over and over and over again. And then he was fired. And then he went for the book for redemption. And I just remember it was called Burning Down My Master's House, which I just thought was such a grievously 
bullshitty bullshitty title. Yeah, like it wasn't his fault what he did. Or that it had some higher purpose. Yes, exactly. Thank yeah. you. His name was Jason Blair. Yeah. And then Janet Cook, who did and the Janet same Cook, thing at right. the, she the lost Washington her Post. I'm glad you mentioned a, a female journalist, because the other thing that Gay Talese got into trouble with recently was he was on a panel at the university oh, yeah. and uh, was asked what writers had influenced him, and he gave a list. And somebody said, what about any women writers? And he said, no. No women writers had any impact on him at all. That was not taken very well. Way, way to quarters. gain friends and influence people. <laughs> he took a great okay. deal of heat for that. But he also said something interesting. I want to get you, I want to have you respond to it in relation to these to all of these people we're talking about. He said, this is in an interview with Vulture, if I had been careful, I would never have written anything at all. And that's an interesting thing for a writer to say. Uh, that is, being too careful can kill story and uh, can kill momentum and everything else. And he was not careful in all sorts of ways, right? When he wrote Thy Neighbor's Wife, which was about swinging, and he managed a massage parlor for a while during that, and he was like in all of the kind of outre parts of the sexual world of, of that time. And he got in a lot of trouble. He was, you know, and got called a sleaze master. He says the trouble he's in now is nothing compared to what the dark days of the 70s after that book. So he's saying, if I'm careful, I never would have written anything at all. A science writer, I'm not sure can get away with saying that, right? They're in different corners of the woods, Gay Talese and Jonah Lehrer. And to Gay Talese's point, I agree. Any creative person really has to throw caution to the winds at a certain point, and you're going to just go out there. I mean, I guess it's a different set of rules if you're writing nonfiction, and you do need to be somewhat careful, obviously, although that's an ongoing debate these days. And as the line between fiction and nonfiction continues to blur. But yeah, he clearly would not have had his career as gay Talese had he been careful. I think that the rule, the lesson that we learn from all of these stories is beware the decisions that you make and that you are responsible for the decisions you make. And I think part of the reason we take such pleasure in this is that we think, rightly or wrongly, we could be fooling ourselves just like Jared Kushner is fooling himself, that we have hewed close to the moral universe, that we have tried to act respectfully. And so we do get some pleasure seeing these people behaving so badly and falling for it. That's a generous interpretation, I think, for us, because I would say the opposite. That is, we all know that we fail morally and ethically, more or less regularly, and that we kind of assume that because of who we are and how minor these failings are, that they're never going to come to light. And therefore, we go on as if we were the moral people we present the world uh, to the world. But in fact, we know that that if anybody really could have seen every minute of our lives, there's lots of it that we wouldn't be proud of and we wouldn't want splashed across the newspapers, and that that is part of the pleasure of schadenfreude. It's that we know we could be in the same mess. That's true as well, and a deeper explanation, I think. Why, thank you, Lori. Let me push back a little bit. Regarding, because you are an unfailingly ethical person. <laughs> regarding Jonah Lehrer, Tom, as an author of nonfiction, could you see yourself in his position? He made shit up. No. Lori, could you? I could not, but I spectacularly could not see myself in Jared Kushner's position. I mean, that's beyond the pale to me. That's as outrageous as Trump himself. But Tom, I'm guessing to bring in our third uh, subject today, I'm guessing you could see yourself in Gay Talese's position. Yes, 
I could. That is, I could see kind of getting involved in this story and realizing that the story was fraying around the edges and deciding that it was still going to be fun to tell it. Okay. And fudging in all sorts of ways by admitting it in the book itself and by trying to absolve myself as I went along rhetorically that it was somehow going to be all right. I've been thinking we need to have more fun on this show. So to conclude the segment, we're going to play a game called Who's Going to Hell? All right. Okay. Uh Lori, you go first. Jonah Lehrer, Gay Talese, Jared Kushner. Who's going to hell? Jared Kushner, obviously. Tom, Jonah Lehrer, Gay Talese, Jared Kushner. Who's going to hell? I don't believe in hell. (laughs) Hell is other people, and I put them all in that category. (laughs) Putting your cosmology aside for a second. Yeah. Any of these guys going to hell? I think that Jared Kushner and Jonah Lehrer have made their own hells. And I think that Gay Talese is he's 84 years old, and I'm sure he's not thrilled about this, but uh, he's having a good life. And uh, I don't think it's hell. As he said, hell was worse in the 70s. Uh, he can live with this. What about you, Seth? I'll settle this. Jared Kushner's going to hell. Woo! All right. Two to one. <laughs> Thanks to Alan Minsky. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to our new czar of scheduling, Mary Alexa Cavano. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Thanks to Emerson College for use of their beautiful studio. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. But before we go away, Tom... Did we talk enough about bullshit this week? I feel we missed the opportunity to talk a little bit about Donald Trump himself rather than just his son-in-law because Donald Trump is, I believe you call him the emperor of bullshit. He is the emperor of bullshit. And if we had a little more time on the topic, what would you say? That he has brought it into our national politics at a level that we haven't, I'm not sure we've ever seen. Will we recover? No. Come back next week and find out.